Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Heart and Soul Broadcasting Services. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Precious Nika, the founder and chief executive officer of Winfield Strategy and Innovation. If you enjoy this conversation, remember to subscribe, to like, and share. Let's get down to some work. Precious Nika, I am so delighted to have you back again here. <laughs> Thank you, Trevor. I'm really excited to be back and excited to be back in person. I yeah. think the last time we spoke, it was COVID and we were online. So I'm really excited to be here in person. You, you know, I was looking at, uh, I was watching our conversation again, and it, it did take me back to those COVID days. Talk to me about what that was, what those COVID days were like for you. I mean, you and I had a fantastic conversation over Zoom. There was a time <laughs> when Zoom was the thing. What was it like for you? I think it was it was scary. It was um, it was a time when you realized that you know there, there's so many things in this world that you don't know, and you have mm. to accept that you don't know. And yet, in the same moment, you have to lead people. And convince people that, look, we're going to get through this and we're going to get through this together. But in the meantime, you're trying to search for answers, right? You're trying to figure out, guys, are we going to get through this pandemic? Do we have solutions? Does the world have solutions? Um, and I think that's, that's yeah, that's, it was. That's leadership, that's, isn't it? Yeah. Where yeah. you've got to uh, get out there and, and present a brave face. We've got to get out of this. But meanwhile, you're dealing with issues yourself. Yes. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're trying to figure out yeah. whether we actually can get yeah. through this. Yeah. But you can't really say that to the people you're no, leading. You they need a confident leader. They need they need to be, you know, convinced that someone in the driving seat has, Is our, in charge. has our back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> has our back. But precious, I, I thought that you and I should sit down and have this conversation because since we talked, mm. you have changed. Uh, careers, yes, you you've you've become a different uh, person in in the industry, as it were. And I've sat there and I've been in total awe and admiration of what you've been able to do. Um, just let's just recap when we spoke, when we had the conversation, you were with Lafarge and the CEO of Lafarge. For how long have you been with uh, Lafarge? Uh, I worked with Lafarge for ten years. For ten years, yeah, That's, that was a long season, wasn't mm, it? it was. When when you look now. Uh, I was saying, for me, it looks like you left Lafarge and you just took off. And and you have taken off in a manner, for me, that has impressed me. And I can see that the, the market is totally uh, embracing you. Talk to me now about the lessons that you learned from that departure from Lafarge. And you're launching yourself as uh, as uh, an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. uh, from an executive to an entrepreneur. Talk to me about the lessons you learned and the pay, the points of pain, perhaps that you mm. you did enjoy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So thank you for that question, Trevor. I think first of all, um, my leaving Lafarge and leaving the job as CEO was not. It was not as easy. I think, you know, when people see how I've taken off, they kind of think that, you know, I just, it was easy and it was not emotionally tormenting for me. But it was not an easy season. And um, I tried to make that uneasy season as short <laughs> as possible in the grand scheme of things. Um, key things that um, I learned in that season, I think I'll talk about three things. Uh, one is mindset. The other is support systems and the other is preparation. Mm. On mindset, I think one of the biggest things that defeats us in moments like that is what we believe about ourselves. And it's also um, what we believe will happen after this. Uh, there's a, a popular psychologist, a man called Martin Seligman, uh, who wrote um, a book about um, what he said are the three things 
that um, prevent people from recovering. And he said one is personalization. Mm -hmm. The other is the thought of pervasiveness. And the other one is a thought of permanence. Mm. The first one on personalization is where someone spends a lot of time blaming themselves for what happened and believing that they can no longer do anything. They, they're not good enough and they, they don't have it within them. And I think that comes from a lack of self-belief and where someone is, was not actually grounded mm. in knowing themselves as a person and what they're capable of. But when you know yourself and you know what you're capable of, when you go through seasons like that, you're able to separate the issue from the person. Mm. You're able to separate the institution's direction from your capabilities. And you're able to say, okay, maybe this was not my season. Maybe this was the wrong timing. Maybe this was, um, you know, a completely different season. And I need to continue on my journey um, of whatever it is I was doing and meant to do. Right. So that's personalization. The second one is permanence, where you believe that the after effects of this, uh, you know, loss will affect my life for the rest of my life. And it nothing will change. And in such a situation, normally the fact that you do nothing and you go home and you lick your wounds and you feel sorry for yourself is what makes it permanent. And recognizing that I am the only person that can get myself out of this situation um, is powerful. And I think I, I, I personally recognize that very quickly that you know, this is my journey, my story, uh, and my space. And I'm the only person that can get myself out of that. The final one is pervasiveness, where he talks about the fact that you believe that the problem will affect every aspect of your life. It will affect your marriage, your dogs, your, <laughs> your, your leadership in church, your um, I don't know, your friendships. Mm, how uh, you your, are viewed. It, it will affect everything. So because you believe that it's going to be a pervasive issue, you also, you, you know, you, you become overtaken by the problem because of that. And recognizing that, no, this problem is situational and it will, it's only going to affect the, the, the career this part of my career, at this point in my life, not for the rest of my life, this part of my career, at this point in my life, and five years from now, it will just be a dot in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of my journey, but at that it will be a dot. At that particular time, Precious, mm -hmm. it looks like it's the biggest thing that has ever happened to Exactly, <laughs> exactly. In that moment, it looks like it is the biggest yeah, thing. Yeah. But recognizing that, in a year's time, in two years' time, it will be nothing, yeah. is what helps you to get out of there faster. Yeah. And so I spend, I, I effectively, by knowing that, my mental state uh, was really geared around, I'm the only person that can rescue myself from this. This is not a permanent problem, and I need to mm. uh, get out of it mm. and move on, mm. you know, and start something else or, or go into something else. But as you know, when you're a CEO, you know, there are very few jobs <laughs> after CEO that you can get, right? You can almost count the number of CEOs in this country and say, you know, what would be my next move unless somebody dies, you know? That the, conversation the, might must not have been easy. Yeah. It it takes us to what were the pain points? Because when you when you woke up in the morning and like, how many CEO positions are there? And how many are vacant and there's none? Talk to me about the pain points of that journey. Yeah. So, yeah. So uh, just thinking about that, you recognize that uh, the opportunity that I've been comfortable with, which is working for someone else, may not actually be the next solution. And it takes me to my next point where I said I learned three things. Yeah. So the second, interrupted yeah, that, uh, the second part is around support systems. Uh, when I left Lafarge, um, during the time I was a member of YPO, and YPO is the Young Presidents yeah. Organization, 
It's an international organization where business leaders support business leaders. And it was founded on the premise and recognition of the fact that it's very lonely at the top. And when you're in moments such as the ones that I went through, you sometimes you don't really have people around you that you can really talk to about this in the most authentic way and actually get solutions of how to move forward. And so in YPL, there were six people who were part of what we call uh, forums, which was my forum. And when I, when I left Lafarge, they said, Precious, we need to sit down. We need to have an emergency forum meeting. Wow. And we need to talk about your next move. And so a few days wow. after leaving Lafarge, I went, I sat, and we started to talk about what is the next thing I could do. The beauty of the members that I had in my forum is that I think only two of them work, worked for um, someone else or were CEOs in, in other companies. The rest of them were business owners or entrepreneurs. So guys like Nigel Phelps, who is the owner of ProBrands, guys like um, uh, Christian Patel, who is part owner of NB. You know, all these guys, they own their own businesses. So when they sat with me, they said, Precious, you want to go and look for another job? Really? You know, when we talk to you every day, we ask ourselves if she could direct this energy and passion that she has to something of her own, she would create the most amazing business. And these are just entrepreneurs who run their own businesses watching you from a side. And you are there thinking, I am incapable. <laughs> I am incapable yeah. of building something, you know, that can grow this grand. And we spent three days, three days. What's your resource? Three days just focusing on my career and my next move. And I remember I was actually laughing uh, with one of the guys uh, who was there, Stuart Knight, about the fact that at the end, we were so undecided about what I should do that we ended up having to put all these things that we had decided on on the table and saying, let's, um, let's almost toss a coin because we're all so convinced that these are the next biggest moves. One of them was for me to start uh, a consulting company in strategy and innovation uh, because I was good at it. I had worked in that space and also I studied strategy and innovation at Harvard. The other was for me to start a furniture manufacturing company, uh, where a uh, furniture manufacturing and retail company, because my first years, my formative years in my career, I worked in furniture manufacturing and retail. Yeah. And I understood that business. That was the second one. The third one was to go into real estate. And now we needed to decide which one has more chances of success. That, because that's the one you should start with, which will then fund you know, the all the others. Yeah, But they were a great support system. And I came from that session ready. You know, I left Lafarge in September. And, um, and actually, I left at the end of August, uh, which was going into September. I was uh, on a break for one month, uh, which is September. And on the 1st of October, 2021, I started Winfield Strategy and Innovation. It was just like that. And when I launched it, I remember I, I, I sat on my bed and I was writing on LinkedIn that, you know, this is now my next career move. I've started I remember this reading that on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. And overnight, it took off like... I literally had to hire people overnight to do the work that I had uh, that was coming from just that post. I think that post had close to half a million views on LinkedIn. Now, for me, you know, I could never have transitioned that quickly without the support systems I had. And the support systems basically are, uh, as I said, my colleagues from YPO, my husband. Let me tell you something. Mm. Uh, I remember... Um, at the time I left Lafarge because I loved that job and I thought I had arrived and I thought, this is, what can get better than this? What can be better? <laughs> and so coming down from there, 
It was so painful. I remember I used to just cry every day. I'll just sit and just cry. And my husband said, okay, let's go on a break. I think you need a few days away uh, just to, you know. So we we went uh, to Nyanga with the family. Everybody was there. And we spent about a week there. And I remember that because I, I was crying every day, every day, literally. Like my, I would pick up the phone. My dad just says, Makadi uh, Moyo. And then... <laughs> I'm laughing now, but uh, it's not, it, yo, wasn't funny it wasn't yeah. funny then. Right? And then while we were in Nyanga, I remember saying to my husband, oh my God, I haven't cried in four days. And that was it. Hmm. That was it. What do you think stopped the crying? You know, I think it was a recognition of what was more important to me. And I almost recalibrated and went back to a very low point in my life. Um, there was a time three months before the time that I left Lafarge, I felt sick and I developed what they call a pulmonary embolism, which is cl- blood clots in your lungs. And I was hospitalized for 12 days. And the doctor said, we have a 50-50 chance of survival. And while I was lying on that bed in that hospital, I remember every day I used to say, God, give me another chance to live. I want to see my children grow. And at some point I got so desperate because I wasn't improving. And I just said, God, even if I don't walk and I don't, and I, and I, and I can't do anything else, as long as I can just sit by my porch and watch my children grow. And when I got better and came out of there, I knew very well that that was the biggest priority of my life. Never at any point, even though I was CEO, never at any point in those 12 days did I say, God, make me leave so that I can go back (laughs) to my job as CEO. Never. And so when we took the break, I sort of went back to that because I was with family, with friends, with everybody and my kids. And I sort of went back to that to say, hey, wait a minute. I'm alive and I can see my children grow. And that was it. It's a clarifying moment of what's important in life, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. The important things we forget in life as we're running around and thinking that being Lafayette CEO is the most important the most thing. <laughs> when it's not. When Precious, it's not. we're going to take a break here. Mm. When we come back, um, viewers don't go away. When we come back, I'm going to ask uh, Precious whether there are moments when she wishes she had done this uh, earlier. And uh, we're going to get into what Winfield Winfield. Um, strategy and innovation is all about. There were degrees that were given to us when we showed up at the University of Zimbabwe. Some administrator there decided you are going to do psychology. Mm. Nothing to do with your talent whatsoever. Greetings. My name is Trevor Nube, host of In Conversation with Trevor, Zimbabwe's most engaging conversational show. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. We've brought before your screens change makers from arts, business, and politics, and from the region. Please join our growing community of viewers. Subscribe, like, and share. Welcome back to our conversation with Precious Nika, the founder and CEO of Winfield Strategy and Innovation. Precious Before we took the break, you took us through this very powerful um, retelling of what you went through, where you thought for a moment that being CEO of Lafarge, you had arrived. Mm. You are now doing something different, CEO of Winfield Strategy and Innovation. And I like what you shared around the support structure from uh, YPO. Uh, I'm I'm a former member of YPO, oh, so nice. I know exactly what 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 they do, and uh, um, I find that very powerful. Now, when you look back, this is a job that you enjoyed, that you liked, you thought you had arrived. Then things change. 
I think this is an opportunity for me to reshare with the viewers that I was fired in 1995 oh. as the CEO of the, uh, not CEO, not CEO, fin as the editor in chief of the Financial Gazette. I didn't know and, that. And um, I was riding high. I was, I was the man around town, um, editor in chief of uh, the Pink Paper. And when I was fired, uh, it was a painful time for me. And um, I remember sitting there and thinking, oh, I'm a man about town. This phone is going to ring off the hook. The phone never rang. Only one person called me to say, are you okay? Mm. And like you said, these seasons do clarify the mm. things that matter in our life. That's true. They do. Let me fast forward and say, when you look back now, do you have moments when you say to yourself, I should have done this earlier? I do. I, I have many of those moments. And, you know, because right now what I'm doing, it's not only um, financially gratifying. It's actually, I, I feel very grounded. I feel like I'm living my purpose. I mean, this is stuff that I love to do. And I come alive. Um, those that have done strategy sessions with me or leadership development programs with me, I think can testify <laughs> that I, I'm like... I see I, you limping I, from, I, from pictures <laughs> and uh, videos. I'm like, this woman is having a time come, of her life. I come, I absolutely come alive. And it's the kind of job that, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm exerting a lot of, you know, effort. I do it effortlessly and I love it. And I say to myself, why didn't I do this earlier? Look at the institution we've created. Look at the impact we're creating for um, the businesses in Zimbabwe and in Africa as a whole. And, you know, at some point, you know, critical conversations with my dad, with friends. One of the things he said is that, you know, you, you could not have done this earlier. Because everything that happened to you was important. was important to get you to this point. The experiences you had uh, what were the seed that helped you to be who you are today. You, you could never have been who you are today without those experiences. So you can't separate yourself from that. The good and the bad. Yes, the journey had to happen that way mm -hmm. for you to be here today. What scares me the most, Trevor, is... Say I hadn't left Lafarge the way I did. Would I still be there today yeah. doing that job? Mm -hmm. Can you just imagine the unopened box of my entrepreneurial capabilities? That would have just gone. I would have worked there until I retired. And I would have gone. Because you were comfortable. Because I was comfortable and I was happy. And it, it begs for me the question that says, so how do you know in this lifetime mm. what, what potential you have if you don't take a leap? How, how do you know if you never take a leap, if you're never uncomfortable? Mm. Actually, you could live and die. Without fulfilling Without your ever potential. opening that box. Mm. What answer do you your, give to your question? Of your full potential. What answer do you give to your question? The answer that I give to that is that, so everyone has that unknown box of, you yourself don't know what you're capable of, or no one else in the world knows what you're capable of. The best way is to open that box. It's number one. Either it's to get a coach or a mentor, somebody that can push you beyond your known capabilities, somebody ca that can see you from afar and say, oh my God, this person can actually achieve this. That's one. The second thing is it's to try out new things to try out other things besides what you were employed to do. I think for the greater part of it, most of us, the degrees that we're doing have no relationship with our talent. They were degrees that were given to us when we showed up at the University of Zimbabwe. Some administrator there decided, Indeed. you are going to do psychology. Mm. Nothing to do with your talent whatsoever. Yet we have defined our whole lives around the degrees that we did that never had a correlation mm. with our capabilities. Tell me, tell me, mm. do you, do, when you look back, mm. were there moments, flashes, when you were at Lafarge, that you could go back and say, I had a moment where I thought maybe I should do this. 
Maybe the discomfort I was experiencing did bring this to mind. Did you have those moments at all? I did. I did. did. Actually, I, did. I had those moments way much earlier, um, which was my third point that I wanted to mention yeah. about preparation. When I was 29 um, and I was doing uh, my career map at 29 and I needed to decide where I would be in 10 years at 40, uh, I was very clear that at the age of 40, I want to leave the corporate world and run my own business. And in that conversation, I was also clear that that business would be an HR consulting company. And my coach at the time said to me, okay, you need to build the steps towards doing that. And I said, okay, well, I, have, I have 10 years. So, you know, I can, <laughs> I got time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he said, no, uh, because to run, for you to leave your job, you don't, you don't leave your job so that you can start a business. You start a business so that you can leave your job. You know, so it's the other way around. Yeah. So I, 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 well, I didn't do it at the time. I just said, okay. But I started to work on the steps to prepare mm. for that day. Mm. I started to build my profile, started to work more with IPMZ to, to understand more about around HR, around the pain points of HR professionals, etc. And when I was 35, I had that moment where, um, as HR director, I was tasked with the task of uh, firing four directors when we had a leadership change. And that left me so bruised. And I realized I'm standing on shaky ground and I should pursue the goal that I set five years back. Mm -hmm. And so I, at 35, I started uh, my first company. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is called Hedge Talent Solutions. And I set it in motion because of that discomfort. Again, it was discomfort. It was never when I was in my comfortable space. It was the discomfort of watching my colleagues uh, losing their jobs and over nothing except that, you know, we had a leadership change and the new leadership needed their own, you know, their own team. Team. Um, and I started... The new business uh, when I was 34. And by the time I was 40, that business was about six years old. It was very established. It was, you know, it was working, running on its own. I had a general manager who was managing the business. I was just a shareholder, uh, you know, checking in, going to board meetings, etc. Uh, I fully declared that business um, as one of the businesses I own. Um, but, you know, I never spent time there, but the business was growing. Mm. Trevor, funny thing is, uh, by the time uh, in 2021, the year that I would turn 40, I was now CEO. And at the age of 28, it never occurred to me that I would be CEO at the time when I turned 40. Mm. If I had it my way, I probably would have extended that into, yeah. you know. But I left uh, Lafarge at the end of August 2021. And on the 23rd of November 2021, I turned 40. Wow. And so what I learned from that is that 70% of our life outcomes are within our control. There are 30% of things that will happen that are not within our control. But if we stick to the plan that we had, we'll end up where we're headed. Have a plan. Have a plan. Have a plan. Be prepared. And so I left and I went. Of course, I started Winfield, but I only started Winfield because I realized that that business had been running so well without, without me. You. They didn't need me there. And so I needed to start something else that could be mentally stimulating. I mean, after working on 16 cylinders every day, and then you go back and you're just like, oh, <laughs> one cylinder is open. <laughs> <laughs> you 
feel you're like not, you're not exercising your full potential. Exactly, exactly. So, so the last time we did our Zoom conversation, you went into great detail to tell us about um, where you were educated, uh, which is an important uh, part of your journey and where, where, which contributed to where you are right now. Let's take a listen to that uh, conversation. Yeah, so I I was um, uh, born in Mashingo, but uh, I was raised in Mutare. So my parents are, you know, they are from Mashingo, which is a Karanga clan. Uh, but uh, we grew up in Mutare because my dad worked in Mutare and he had a business there. So that's where I went to school. I went to a primary school called Bering Primary School. And, uh, you know, uh, from there, I went to high school at a school called St. Augustine's. Uh, for those that have grew up in Mutare, you know, there's a conversation about the fact that, uh, you know, there's a, a Manika statement that says, which is, if you didn't go to St. Augustine's, uh, you didn't go to school. <laughs> you know? right. As I was growing up, that was the go-to school at the time. And, and you know, that's, that's, that's where I went to school. And I want to take you a little bit back to my mm. primary school days mm. and then come back to high school. You know, when I was in primary school, I was born in a family of five. So uh, three boys and two girls. And when I was in school, you know, I was in primary school getting good grades, uh, passing. And my dad always made a big fuss about my success. So every time I came home with, you know, good grades, he would throw a party. He would take me out for drinks with his friends and say, you know, my daughter is doing very well. You guys need to buy me drinks, you know, because of this. And he would go out of his way just to celebrate my success. Even in times when, you know, those successes were so small. Like when I look at, look back at it, some of the things I think, you know, that was not worth that big thing, you know, but he did it, you know, to encourage me and, you know, to keep me feeling confident about what I was doing. And I think it really helped to mold the person that I am. Let's get yeah. down to, um, Winfield Strategy and Innovation, yeah. what do you do? What's, what does this company do? So Winfield is a management consulting company. Uh, effectively, we do um, strategy work for businesses. So we support our clients in strategy design and formulation, strategy communication, strategy cascading. Um, we also do work around uh, research. So we do business research that feeds into strategy. Uh, that helps businesses to see exactly where their problem is that they need to solve. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's a big part of what we do. We also do leadership development work. So we have a business school uh, called Winfield Business School, which offers short courses. So we don't offer, you know, long MBA programs, whatnot. Our niche is in offering short practical courses mm -hmm. that are facilitated by other business leaders, not by... Um, by academics uh, or, you know, people in, we're not even trying to replicate what academic institutions mm, are doing. Mm. We're trying to complement that. So ours is business leaders uh, inspiring business leaders. Mm. And those, we, we do practical sort courses that close that gap, um, the competency gaps that we're seeing in business today. And then we also do um, what are those governance. gaps? What are those gaps? Before I forget that question, what are those competence gaps that you're noticing in business today? So I think uh, one of the biggest gaps is around transitioning from being a whether it's a supervisor or a, or or just an employee into being a manager or a leader. A lot of companies take that for granted, and people are just promoted into leadership roles. They are never told what it takes to lead people. They're never trained. And as a result, this is how toxic cultures develop. This is how issues of psychological safety and others manifest, um, you know, in a negative way in organizations because these people don't understand what it means to lead people and to get the best out of people. Um, and so when you take that, you know, when you take that for granted, um, you miss an opportunity mm, to um, mm. to create value for your organization. So we we come in with programs that bridge that gap. We actually have a program called the Next Manager, which just before somebody becomes a manager, they must go through uh, so that they can lead effectively. And then we have also programs that 
one of the other things we've seen in our country is because of a lack of exposure. Mm. We make mistakes that have already been made in other countries by other businesses and you know, that we could avoid. And because of that lack of exposure as well, we miss the opportunities to expand our businesses exponentially. Mm. So we take business cases of African businesses that have done exceptionally well, of European businesses that have done exceptionally well, and we bring them into the business school and we dissect them. And people see from those stories just how a company went from zero to a hundred mm. in a short time and what does it take to build a business like that and so most of our in our executive development program for example are mds of small to medium enterprises that are trying to build organizations that will last mm. but they don't know how they don't know what does it take to build an entity like Lafarge mm. or an entity like uh, Procter & Gamble. What does it take? And so that's what that program helps them to do, um, to build lasting organizations. Mm. Yeah. And, and around innovation, what, 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 are you, what are you doing? What are you looking at? Right. So on innovation, uh, what we do is we try to help companies to solve some of their biggest problems in an innovative way. Right. And there we go and say, okay, um, what is the greatest challenge that you have today? And we apply, we have a model that we use uh, that you know, ba is based on a Harvard technique of solving problems. Right. So we walk that journey with them. We train them how to use mm. that model. Mm. And then we, we walk the journey with them of trying to solve the problem innovatively and helping them to find solutions. And we also help them to sort of spread this culture of thinking differently. Mm. You know, people always say, think outside the box, think outside, but they don't give a framework for how is, to is think outside. Is that design thinking? Yes, it's design, design thinking. thinking. Yeah. Exactly. So we have a design thinking framework that then helps people to think outside the box. So you, you, you don't even make effort. The framework just makes you think outside the box. Mm. You know, it's not like just sit there and think outside the box, Trevor. <laughs> How do I do that? How do you do that? <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. exactly. What do you enjoy the most about this assignment? I think what I enjoy the most... You know, before you um, answer that question, I must say, mm. I must tell you this, which you don't experience, is that I'm experiencing, for me, uh, interacting with you, I've experienced two preciouses. There's a precious who was um, tentative, the precious I'm experiencing now is so full of energy and so self-assured. Do you feel that yourself? I do. I absolutely Is do. the corporate environment restrictive? To a certain extent, it is. Because, you, you know, for the greater part of it, being a CEO in a big corporate, it's a yeah. straitjacket. Everything is defined, you know. You do this, this and that. You go by this guideline, that guideline, that guideline. You, there's very little room for, for creativity. And, you know, there's very little room for that. And you don't know it until you get there. When you're down there, you think, you know, I will do what I want when I become a CEO. Mm. But when you get there, you realize, no, it's a straight it's jacket. Very, yeah, yeah, it yeah. is. It's do you deal jacket. with that issue in your innovation and, and, and strategy stuff? Because this straight jacket can be good for, for, for innovation. Yes, we do deal with that. We do try um, and help organizations to say, so how do you maintain control but also still uh, promote creativity and innovation because you want both. Yeah, you know you don't want to. You, you know, want structure, yeah, but you, yes, you want structure, but you also want creativity. Yeah. So how do you find the balance? Yeah. So we work on that when we do, you know, some of our innovation uh, sessions and mm. classes. Yeah, I'd ask you what do you enjoy the most about this job? Yeah. Um, what I love, I love the most is having conversations, leadership conversations with, uh, you know, the different uh, leaders that we meet every day. And hearing their challenges, sharing my insights and debating, you know, around what could be the possible outcomes of that. You know, I believe, you know, having spent time in Harvard Business School, one of the greatest things I learned is that there's no one way of solving a problem. There's just multiple ways. And the broader the number of perspectives you have, the richer your decision quality. So 
around any problem, if we can have multiple perspectives, we enhance our decision quality. And that's what you know gives me energy, you know, to hear I, I, I can I can sense the excitement and yeah. I'm thoroughly uh, absolutely happy for you. We're gonna take another break. Uh when we come back, uh don't go away at home. When we come back, I want us to go to the issue that uh, uh, our good friend Memorangui, um, you know, did uh, raise uh, to to national awareness, which is uh, psychological safety, um, the importance of that, and also um, he did provoke a conversation around team building is a waste of time. What what do you what do you think about that? And uh, Adam Grant, I've got two of his books here, does agree that team build, building is a the waste of waste of time. So don't go away at home. We'll come back and uh, drill down on those two issues that I raised. It's not team building that is a waste of time. It's the kind of team building that you are doing that could be a waste of time. Welcome back to our conversation with Precious Nika, the founder and CEO of uh, Winfield Strategy and Innovation. Precious, as this is the season where a lot of companies do uh, strategy breakaways. Uh, they plan for, for the next 12 months or for, for the next six months. In your interaction with companies, as far as strategy formulation is concerned and strategy reviews uh, are concerned, what issues do you find companies are battling with? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, there are two things uh, for me. One is a process issue mm -hmm. and another is a choice issue. Mm -hmm. uh, the main one that we find, uh, which we, we, we try really hard to help companies to understand doesn't work, is companies in Zimbabwe are so used to... Um, doing strategy in silos and in functional silos. Mm. So effectively, leaders of the business will tell their people that we're going for a strategy planning session. You need to write your strategy. Now, each functional head then does a strategy for their function. To what end? Nobody knows. To solve what challenge? Nobody knows. So each person is trying to solve their little challenge in their microspace. And when you now get to this to the strategy session, what they're asking you to do as a facilitator is to piece all those little pieces Pull it together. together. But because they didn't all originate from trying to solve the one challenge, they're all trying to solve multiple mini wars. That is a nightmare for any strategy facilitator to bring that together. And the best and one of the best and most proven ways to do that is centered around what strategy actually is, which is that it's an integrated set of choices that allow businesses to achieve a competitive edge against their competitors. And the biggest part of it is the integration part, which is that we must first as a business identify what is our challenge of the season? What is it that if we solve can solve 80% of our problems. And then we channel every department's energy towards that challenge. So now everybody is coming up with actions to solve the one challenge. We right. don't have many, many small wars that are going in all sorts of directions. And when we do that, now we can actually see that we are doing things that move the needle. So that's a process issue, mm. right? Which is the first thing. The second one is a choice issue. Uh, a key part around strategy is that strategy is about choices. It's about choosing what to do, but most importantly, choosing what not, what to, not do. to do. And the what not to do is what many companies don't focus on. And you find that when they're now done with the strategy session, they're back in the market because they haven't decided exactly what they will not do. They end up with entering into, you know, um, what we call in strategy, you know, uh, they end up with what we call pyrrhic victories, which is 
uh, a victory where the winner loses more than the loser. <laughs> it's a meaningless victory. Yeah. You know, if it was in a war, you've won the war, but at what cost? Mm. In those situations, what I find is that because people have not taken the time to understand what strategy is and what it isn't, the greatest choice you find in most businesses is um, when it gets hard, reduce price. Mm. When it gets hard, reduce price. Now, what that does is that it eats away from the pie of the industry that you're in. Mm. And I want to say this with a specific example, which is that uh, at some point many, many years ago in a company that I worked, we started a price war in another industry, in another country. And we started the price war. Uh, and let's just say hypothetically the product was going for, let's say, $15. We started a price war. We took it to $13. Our competitors took it to 10 We took it to 8 Our competitors took it to 6 We took it to 4 At $4, nobody else moved, right? We won the war, but we completely destroyed that industry. And since the time... No one has ever made a profit in that country, in that industry, because of that price war. So price wars, even though people see them as the default strategy when you are losing to competition, they destroy value. For you, in the cake that you are fighting for, they destroy the cake. They also don't create value for customers because they limit customer options. Like, when the industry is destroyed, mm. many players will get out mm. and the customer's options actually become less. And also, when you are now selling a product at $4 that was meant to be sold at 15 it means you're not compromising on the quality and the things you have to input to get that product. And as a result, the quality actually comes down. But that is a choice that most people default to when the going gets tough. Mm. Price is the last gun. Mm. In any competitive business strategy, price is the last gun. And we say in, in Winfield, price is the gun of a desperate man. Wow. When all else has failed. failed, when all other choices have failed, then you resort to price. Wow. I think those are the two main Fun. challenges Fun. that we that's, find that's, that's amazing, Brad. Mm. Um, the, the, the last time that uh, um, Member Ngui was here, mm. he... Um, we, we're going to play uh, the video. What, what lacks in the organization is what is called psychological safety. Mm -hmm. This is the, the, the freedom to disagree. Mm. Allowing people the freedom to say, Trevor, I don't think the strategy works. Mm -hmm. And you walk away and go and think about it uh, without punishing the person who has actually raised the concern. Mm -hmm. Okay? For, even if you go, Google did a big study called Project Oxygen. And in that uh, particular study, they found that all oh, this team building that you got people going for team building, it, for me, it's a waste of time. Uh, as long as psychological safety is not there, you go there, I'm sure I, I, for those that have gone for team building, you go there, you come back, you go very excited in Yanga and Big Falls, you come back. And when you come back, you are back to square one. You know, you are back to reality. That's what you see. But if there's psychological safety, we put things on the table. Yeah. 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 Regardless of level. If you're in a meeting, let people put their views on the table. And the views must compete for authenticity and credibility. So you're saying yeah. team building is a waste of money and time. If, if psychological safety is not addressed, you must read the book called uh, The Fearless Organization by Amy Edmondson. Mm -hmm. That book lays bare. For example, if you look at the Fukushima disaster, what happened there is that employees actually knew what the problem was. Mm -hmm. But they were ignored. They had no platform to be able to, call, to air the concerns. So essentially, memory is saying team building is a waste of time. And in my reading, I also find that Adam Grant mm -hmm. in, um, in uh, Think Again or uh, Hidden Potential, he also agrees that team building is a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Where do you fall? So, uh, you know, I, I have a completely, you know, um, different view around that. Um, and what I, my view is that it's not team building that is a waste of time. It's the kind of team building uh -huh. that you're doing that could be a waste of time. And it's not all team buildings that are a waste of time. I think at the root of building teams 
is um, a neuro a neuroscience concept around people getting to know each other, right? I can work better with you if I know you. The moment I know that you know you will be uh, consistent in how you show up, and and I know what makes you angry, I know what ticks you off, I know your sensitivities. I can work with you, mm. right? And so when you do team building programs where people get to know each other better and they get to understand the person behind what they see every day, you actually are moving the needle in terms of helping people to to work better. But if you do team building sessions where people just go and they play in the mud and they climb trees trees (laughs) and they ride tires Ah. and all that, in that whole fun process, you haven't done much in terms of opening people up and, and helping them to understand each other. Mm. That's why I'm saying, I, you know, I think rubbishing um, the team. entire concept yeah. of team building actually makes us miss the opportunity um, for people to get to know each other, which mm. is at the base mm. of, of helping people to uh, to work together. It's it's like a marriage. Mm. You've got to know the person that you're going to yeah. get married to yeah. uh, so that you can, you know, live better with them. Uh, going forward. So, mm. yeah, that's my... The, the, the that's other my issue, thing. thank you for that uh, explanation, and I, and I hear it, and I think that's that's the position that Adam Grant takes, that you, you need to be very clear what it is that you're trying to achieve, yes. and, and just uh, playing with tires in the mud and so forth <laughs> uh, does not does not begin to unlock mm. who the person is, what the strategy is, mm. because uh, team building ought to be around certain defined goals. Exactly. What view do you take on psychological safety, the importance of it. Again, mm-hmm. Memo was pretty passionate about that. He actually started a national conversation around the importance of, of uh, psychological safety. And I, I've been reading um, around uh, the stuff that Emmy Edmund, Edmund Song has written around uh, psychological safety. And she says that it improves psychology, it improves uh, performance rather, uh, and avoids burnout in places like medicine. Uh, it reduces mortality, and and that it 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 allows for innovation. Mm. But there's people like Elon Musk. I mean, I've just mm. finished reading Elon Musk's book, and when you talk, when you mention uh, psychological safety, Elon Musk laughs. He thinks that it's, it's nonsensical because of his management style. He's mm. dictatorial, and he's been able to achieve amazing things mm. using that style. Where do you see it as far as? the importance of psychological safety in the workplace. Mm, mm. So I personally believe in in psychological safety. Uh, I think you know that I have a psychology background. Yeah. And I completely understand how creating an intimidating environment can limit uh, the capabilities of an organization and how people um, who work in an an environment where there is no psychological safety uh, can become constricted in their ability to contribute uh, effectively. I completely uh, believe in that. Um, However, I find that what I've found over time is that today we have a multi-generational workforce, right? And in the multi-generational workforce, we have a generation of people, uh, probably, you know, these are baby boomers. Let's talk about Zimbabwe, yeah. right? Uh, they went through war, right? They had to fight to get an education. They had to fight to get a job. And so when they got a job, for them, you know, work must be tough. You know, work must be tough. If you're working, uh, you know, the tougher it is, yeah. the more, um, I don't know, uh, the more important that job is. Yeah. Because that's the environment that they grew up in. They felt like they were privileged mm. to have a job. It mm. was not a right. And then you have another generation, which are millennials, right? Who were born in the 80s and education was now available. And also jobs were also now available to black people, which were not available in the past. And for them, education is a right. They believe in credentials. Mm. They believe the more educated you are, the the better you are as an employee. Then you have the Gen Z who were born by millennials. Education is there as it's a right. Uh, Work is a right. They believe I choose to work. Mm. And because I choose to work and I have an option not to work, my job must make me happy. Now, cross these two guys, 
<laughs> One who says, my job must make me happy. Yeah. And another who says, work must be hard. <laughs> you have a clash of you, cultures. You, you are an absolute clash of cultures. And these ones think these ones are sissies. Mm. You know, coming into the workspace thinking that we should be making them happy. This is not the place for that. And yet, these are the ones who are leading these businesses. And so it's so difficult sometimes to create psychological safety because of those multi-generational differences. However, with leadership training, mm. leaders can understand the damage that they're causing by not creating an open workspace, by not cultivating psychological safety. The opportunities that they're missing uh, by not creating that level of openness. And I think when leaders get to see that, because I mean, their concern is for the bottom line, when they yeah. get to see what they're missing, yeah. they probably can invest more into building psychological safety mm. in the workspace. Yeah. Precious, you and I could go on and on. And uh, like I said, I really am inspired by your journey. You. Um, really inspired by your journey. I'm not going to let you go before we talk books. Yes, you know, I'm passionate about books and I want you to share with our viewers three or so books that you've read. What would those books be? Okay. Um, so in the last two years, I've read uh, three great books. One is called Option B mm -hmm. and it was written by Sheryl Sandberg and Adam Grant. And it's the book that talks about permanence, pervasiveness, and um, I must get and that personalization. One. Yeah. Yes, it talks about resilience of getting over some mm. of the most difficult mm. challenges of your life. Um, and then after option B, I would give Built to Last, and uh, it's a book that uh, speaks to the notion of how do you build an organization that can last mm. beyond your time. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's really great for people that are building businesses uh, like me. I mean, the journey of building, you know, two great businesses, mm. actually three. So I, I, you know, I read those kinds of books and they, and they really help me. Um, uh, and one of the things it says is that great businesses build cult-like cultures. Mm. They are pedantic about building cult-like cultures that help them to be consistent in whatever they do and how the customers experience their businesses. Um, the third one, which I would recommend, I think I saw it here, is Atomic Habits. Mm, okay, um, yeah, indeed. We've got it. <laughs> by James Clear, yeah. yeah. Uh, Atomic Habits is a great book. Uh, you know, and what this book tells you is that small changes over time you know, will result in actually something big. So day by day, as you're doing what you're doing, nothing seems to be changing. But when you look back, yeah. it's like, wow. You're consistent. Wow. Look at how far yeah. I've come. Yeah. Right? But when you're going through it on a day-to-day -day basis, it just looks like, you know, it's nothing. But It doesn't matter. Yes, it doesn't yeah. matter. But when you look back at the two years and the journey you've walked, it's amazing what you mm. see and what you've created. You've yeah. just said you're building three businesses. In, mm. uh, which one are the, the, uh, help us understand the two? Which others? Okay, so Winfield is the one. And then Fent, which mm -hmm. is a furniture, furniture yeah. manufacturing and retail company. And then Hedge Talent Solutions, which was my ah, first business, right. which is still which is still running, is an HR consulting company. Where do you get the energy to do all this? Um, well, I have business leaders who run the businesses. I just, you know, sit there and bark. <laughs> <laughs> you've shared the books that you've read. I'm going to share with uh, the viewers at home the books that I've read over the holidays. I studied some of them just before the holidays. I mean, I, I, I am... Uh, last time Memorungu was here, he recommended this book. It's a very um, good book. Think Again. I mean, it's a, it's it's a book a that I recommend book. that people do read. Mm, After read Think Again, Adam mm. Grant has done this book, which is an amazing book. Hidden um, Potential. Hidden Potential. I've just finished reading it over, over the weekend. So Adam Grant's book, Hidden Potential, is, a, is, an, amazing, okay. is an amazing book. Okay. I've also read this book, um, Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most in really? the Workplace, in the Family Place. 
Um, it's uh, I'm going to get it from you. It's written by, uh, give it back to me, uh, uh, Precious. It's written by Douglas Stone, Bruce Patton, and Sheila Hinn. They're part of uh, the Harvard uh, Negotiating uh, Project. It's a powerful book on how we, we start the difficult conversations at the family level and business in the country. How do we do those, those conversations? Oh, and then nice. this one, um, How Democracy Works. I've just finished mm. it by uh, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. This, mm. this, um, how this democracies book, die. die how, I'm sorry. How, where did you get work? How, <laughs> how they democracies die. die. How they die. <laughs> this is a book that all Zimbabweans should be reading right now right. because it tells the story of how our democracy has died. Wow. And unless we do something, it will continue to die. So th those are the three books that I, I'm going to be sharing in a couple of weeks wow. to say, guys, you know, leaders read. Wow. Leaders wow. read. Wow. Um, precious, what a joy it's been Thank talking you. to Thank you. you. Your, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Um, and, and the lesson of you thought you had arrived at uh, Lafarge as CEO. You, you, were, you were there, Cloud 99. But God has something mm. different for you. True. But here's the exciting thing. Mm. That where you think you are right now is exciting. There's another stuff coming. Yeah. You you don't know. You never know. And that's 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 also what 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 drives me every day to say what more is there? You know, what do we need to keep doing? That's the joy of life. Yes, that's the joy. What is the point of yeah. living if we don't if we don't reach our full potential? Fantastic. So, yeah. so allow me, precious, to turn to our viewers who are all over the world who follow this show. Remember we are a weekly show. We are out every Monday at 7 a.m. Central African time on YouTube. Proud to say we now have 8.2 million views. We are sitting at 55,000 subscribers. Thank you for your support. If you scroll down, uh, you'll find a link that will take you to our podcasts and to our website where all our conversations sit. We read all your comments, keep them coming. We like the suggestions as we should be sitting where Precious uh, is sitting. Keep those suggestions coming. Until next time, cheers to you all.